for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In the beginning of World War II, a battle raged over the skies of Great Britain from July 1940 to June of 1941. It became known as the Battle of Britain. So the British Royal Air Force valiantly defended the island against the constant onslaught of Nazi Germany's Air Force, the Luftwaffe. Large-scale night attacks known as the Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War, perpetually terrorized civilians. London faced 76 consecutive nights of attacks during this time period. Now, the Nazis' goal was to force a peace settlement, but Britain's Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, knew better. This false peace was a prelude to invasion. In fact, a recent movie entitled Darkest Hour, great movie, by the way, I finally saw it this week, I highly recommend it, chronicles Churchill's ascendancy to Prime Minister and his vehement rejection of the peace proposal from Hitler. In fact, during the movie, you see even his closest confidants urged him to make a peace settlement with the Nazis, but Churchill relentlessly refused. And so as the raids continued, hope seemed lost for the British people. 43,000 civilians were killed. The Germans were preparing an amphibious assault on the island. In their darkest hour, Winston Churchill stood before the parliament and delivered one of his most famous speeches. He said, we shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. In their darkest hour, Churchill's words restored hope, and the Germans turned back, sparing the British Isles. Now I know few, if any, in here today live through the Blitzkrieg, but there are powerful spiritual lessons to be mined from that history. So let me ask you today what was your darkest hour? Or put another way, was there a time when you lost hope? Right, so military bombers may not have been raining down explosive shells on your house, but life's circumstances can feel like an unexpected blitzkrieg. I've heard it said that suffering is the gap between our desires and our reality. Let me say that again. Our suffering is the gap between our desires and our reality. And sometimes this happens in large life-altering ways, like for example, life seems normal, the bills are being paid, everyone's happy, but then the bottom falls out on your finances. I mean, how scary is it when you're not sure how you're going to pay your next bill, right? 
There's a gap between your desire and your reality. Or one day you're running miles on the treadmill. You're aggressively playing basketball. Or you're lifting heavy weights at the gym, and the next day you're diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. Now let me tell you something. Nobody expects that they're going to be diagnosed with cancer. This is what happened to a good friend of mine named Josh. He was one of my youth leaders in high school. He was 39 years old when he got the news that he had multiple myeloma, a disease that most commonly affects people decades older than him. Now talk about unexpected. He and his wife had just adopted several children. It was devastating. There was a gap between desire and reality. Or maybe you're here today and, and you've been in that relationship for a few years and then all of a sudden it, sudden, it, it ends, right? Everything was going so well, you thought, but then the other person comes to you and says those infamous words, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> See, those are the big events in life, but suffering can also be chronic occurring in smaller forms. Like, for example, you, you had a bad week at work, Right? Uh, your coworkers ugh, are insufferable. Right? Your family schedule just, just seems out of whack and it's causing relational strain. Or, or your car broke down this week, right? Or, or uh, you know, if you're a teenager here, maybe your snap streak ended too soon. I don't know. But we all have these experiences at some point in life. And if you haven't experienced something painful here today, just listen, just live a little bit longer and you will. Like there's a guarantee in life that we will always uh, suffer. One day, the peaceful waters upon which you float will toss you overboard into a raging storm. And the blitzkrieg begins, and it might not end for a long time, and so you got to ask, what will I do? Will I keep hope, or will I lose it? Now, one of the main reasons that suffering and hardship throw us for a loop is because we are obsessed, I think, in American life with happiness. Columnist David Brooks wrote this in the New York Times several years ago. He says, we live in a culture awash in talk about happiness. In one three-month period last year, more than 1,000 books were released on Amazon on that subject. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness, it's often the ordeals that seem most significant. See, people, he says, shoot for happiness but feel formed through suffering. Let me say that line one more time. People shoot for happiness but feel formed through suffering. Now think about that. Do you really believe that? Because often I hear people, I'll sit down and talk with people and they say, all I want to do is just be happy. And I think that's the tension a lot of us feel. See, see, we want to avoid hardship at all cost. But if our goal is just to be happy, we have to ask, will I ever truly grow? Now, the British people suffered incredible loss during the Battle of Britain, but they learned, they learned about hope. And if we never experience hope, we will never be prepared when tragedy strikes. So our passage today in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 that's our main passage today. And last week, Pastor Dave did a fabulous job explaining the meaning and reality of justification. Now today, as we enter chapter 5 of Romans, Paul will begin, will begin discussing the benefits of justification. And what he's going to say is this, when you know you're justified, 
When you are made right with God, there is always hope. So when there's always hope, we can face any trials, any blitzkriegs that come our way. In this passage, we're going to see three realities about the human experience. First, we'll see that we long for peace. Second, we'll see that it's inevitable we'll face suffering. And then finally, we can rest in assurance. An assurance that's grounded in the hope of the future. Now, before we dive into those points, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, I don't know how everyone has walked in here today, Lord, but, but this is a big room, there's a lot of people in here, and I suspect that, that somebody's walking through something, or many folks are walking through something, whether it's an illness, whether it's, it's a tragedy, whether it's, it's some stress. Lord, I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would speak to hearts that these words that you've given to us in the book of Romans would encourage us and convict us and point us forward to the hope we have in you, Lord Jesus. So we give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray that. Amen. Now, I once heard someone say, or I should say, I once heard someone ask this question. What, in your opinion, is the very best emotion a person can experience? And I heard that, and I, I, thought, I thought long and hard. I said, what is the best emotion we can experience? Right? If you were asked that question, how would you respond? What's the best emotion? Well, the person who indeed did respond to that question said, without hesitation, the answer was relief. Relief is the very best emotion we can experience, not happiness or joy, relief. Now, I know initially that sounds counterintuitive, but imagine... Just imagine, if you will, walking out of a doctor's office after you receive a negative result on that blood test, right? That feels pretty good, right? See, there was anxiety and tension before you went in, and then you walk out with relief. What's the phrase that people use? You have peace of mind, right? So Romans chapter 5 starts with peace. In fact, verse 1 explodes off of the page with the future benefits of justification. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that opening phrase is transitional, where Paul is summing up everything he's been talking about in Romans 1 to 4. See, in those chapters, he said, everyone's sinful. But God gave us his righteousness through Jesus Christ and justified those who have faith. Boom! Therefore, we have peace. Now, can you feel the relief, <laughs> right? Especially if you're here for the beginning of this series, like four sermons of just, you're sinful, right? There's tension. Now, there's relief, right? Once we were not right before with God, but now we are right with God. See, the Greek word for peace here is the word arene, which means cessation or absence of hostilities. However, the word is related to a Hebrew word. It's the word shalom, which you probably have heard of, which has a much more positive connotation. In, in the Old Testament, shalom peace is a gift God gives to his people. Right? It describes the, the comprehensive nature of God's goodness to his people. In the Old Testament, prophets, this term was used to characterize the salvation that God would bring to his people in the last days. So as a result, this word right here specifically means an outward relationship of peace with God. And that peace only comes through Jesus Christ. 
Now, now, if you skip down to verse 10, you'll see why Paul expands on this idea. He writes this in verse 10. He says, For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Now, in this verse, we learn the reason we need the peace with God. He says, because we were his enemies. We were God's enemies. Now, take that in for just a second. Right, in our modern world, people skip over this truth. But Paul is literally saying here, we were at war with God. Just like Germany and Britain were at war, we were God's enemies. Now again, we read a verse like this and modern people object. Right, they say, how, how could we possibly be God's enemies, right? Modern people don't look at God or ourselves that way. And there's, there's two, at least two reasons for this objection. First, I think we, we and people that we meet out there, have trouble believing that we picked up the sword against God. Right? Why would we rebel against the loving God? I mean, after all, humans are inherently good, aren't they? Now, second, secular people, if they believe in God, see him as this impersonal force in the universe. See, right? God, is, God is a God of love. He gets along with everyone, right, doesn't he? Right? He, God is like the, the old dude who's, who's playing the ukulele and singing kumbaya at the campfire, isn't he? And so we throw around that phrase like, everyone's a child of God. And when I hear that, I cringe a bit, and I'll tell you why. Because everyone, the Bible tells us, everyone's created in the image of God, but unless you know Jesus, Paul's making clear here, you're an enemy of God. We're at war. And it's only when you, you surrender your life to Jesus that you're adopted into his family and you become his child. It's when you're justified that the hostility cease and there is peace. Amen. Now, Paul uses another important word here. He uses that word reconciled. And that word means to bring together or to make peace with two estranged and hostile parties. So it has a similar meaning to justification, but I'll just put it simply. The language of justification is legal, the language of reconciliation is relational. And so both these word pictures are important. We've already said with justification, you picture a courtroom where the judge declares us not guilty. But with reconciliation, we should picture a living room scene where quarreling members of a family make peace. So let me come back to British life for a second. Much has been made in the news about the rift in the royal family. Right, look at the, if you, I know you can't probably read that, but there's a subtext on that People magazine article. It says, rivalries and old wounds are exposed as Meghan and Harry pull out of the royal family Christmas. This is what sells magazines, friends. Harry and Meghan caused a stir because they don't want to be senior royals, and so apparently we can't call them the Duke and Duchess anymore because they're at odds with William and Kate. And that's especially caused Harry and William to be angry at each other. And what they need is reconciliation. Reconciliation is relational. And if it ever happens, it would look like this. If it happens, I don't know. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Our relationship has been restored to peace. And not only that, but he points to the future and says there is a guarantee that we will be saved from the wrath of God. Amen. Right? Because Jesus didn't just die, he rose again. 
will be saved by his life. This has changed everything. Look back at verse 2. He says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, we've been reconciled through Jesus. He's made peace with God for us. And now look at that other benefit. He says, we've obtained access by faith into his grace. Now, what does that mean? Well, the phrase obtained access describes the process. It was actually, it was a pagan term at the time. It, was, it, was, uh, it described the process of being ushered into the court of a king and then being announced. Right, you come in and they're like, hey, so-and-so is here. And that implies that you now can address the ruler. And, and so more than that, Paul is saying that we have been transported to this entirely different realm where grace reigns and we can talk to the king of grace. Now let me describe it a different way. Are there any country music fans out there? Okay, <laughs> all right. More hands this service than the last service, but um, if you're a country music fan, you probably know who Chris Stapleton is, okay? Chris Stapleton performed at Madison Square Garden last year, and Amanda and I had the chance to go. Now, for the first time in my life, I got a backstage pass, okay? And it turns out that one of our relatives is his manager, or one of our relatives knows his manager, I should say, and if you ever have gotten a backstage pass, I got to tell you, it's quite the experience, Okay, so you walk to the ticket counter, and they give you this special lanyard, right? And then you walk to the first usher, and they treat you like royalty. They're like, oh, oh, you got the backstage pass, okay. All right, so, and so they, they, they escort you to this special entrance, and once you go through that special entrance, you enter a, a secret room with a bunch of free, free, I should say, free and delicious food. Can anyone say fried calamari, right? Just all the fried calamari I could possibly eat. And so you hang out in this secret room during the concert, and, and there's another, in the room, there's another secret door that you can go through to get to your seat, and then if one of the security guards stops you, you just take out your backstage pass, and they're like, oh, okay, all right, got the backstage pass. If you're fortunate, you might even meet one of the musicians before they go on stage, and all of that is because I had access, listen, access to this entire realm that other people did not. And so church, don't you understand that we've been given access to this realm of grace where Jesus reigns, we have backstage passes. And we have the ability to spend time with and talk to the king. Amen. These are the benefits of justification, peace with our king and access to a new realm of grace. And that peace and those backstage passes cost Jesus his blood. Listen, Jesus went to war for us so that he would not have war with us. Jesus went to war for us so that he would not have war with us. Amen? Amen. Right. Through Jesus, we get peace forever. Look back at the last part of verse 2. He says this, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, listen, let's get real for just a second. Right. We live in a world at war. All you have to do is turn on the news or open up your favorite news app on your phone, and all you do is see people fighting, right? Jews versus Muslim, Republican versus Democrat, Yankees versus Red Sox. <laughs> Anxiety's on the rise because everyone's afraid of the coronavirus. Our world is seriously lacking peace. 
But Christians, we're told, have peace with God. Now imagine, just imagine, if we showed the world what it means to be people of peace, to be people of hope. Author Henry Nouwen once said, give me courage to show the dove in a world so full of serpents. And that statement sounds weird, right? But what he's saying is this, it requires courage to be a peacemaker when every, everyone around you, all they do is want to fight. Can we be people of courage in a war-torn world? People are longing for peace. We just have to point them in the right direction. Church, we have access to the realm of grace. Let's tap into that power, and we will need it. Because inevitably, the blitzkrieg will come for us. Our peace with God will be tested as we face suffering. And we will face suffering. And you see, peace and suffering are intrinsically linked because, you see, when there's no peace, suffering's inevitable. While we have peace with God, the world is still at war. So think back to that opening illustration I used about the, the Battle of Britain. Now, now just imagine living in London when the air raid sirens were blaring, when you could hear bombs exploding in close proximity. What would be going through your mind if you were living there? And maybe more importantly, what would you say to God in that moment? Because here's the truth, I think. I think the truth is when we suffer, we often question God's love for us. When we suffer, we often question God's love for us. And so we ask, God, why me? God, how could, you're a loving God. How could a loving God allow this suffering to come into my life? God, what? Are you punishing me? Now, these are natural questions to ask when tragedy strikes. But because of everything we've already learned in Romans, we know this, this can't be, right? And so Paul says something counterintuitive in verse 3. He says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now you say, huh? What? I mean, some of you are saying, listen, I have a hard time rejoicing in good times. Like, how am I possibly going to rejoice in bad times? I know it seems difficult to comprehend, and yet, and yet Paul says, rejoice. Indeed, to make it more confusing, some of you have translations that say you should boast in your suffering. And, and that verse, though, I think makes a whole lot more sense when you, when you take it in light of verse 2. Because remember, Paul said we should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is... We rejoice because our future hope, of our future hope of being with Jesus. Amen. And so Paul now says, essentially, don't just rejoice about the future, rejoice now. Even when times are bad, have joy in the good times and in the bad times. Now, the word for suffering is the Greek word thalipsis. And, and it's important because it, it can be translated as tribulation, but more generally, it refers to pressure, right? It, it, it has this general meaning as in, as in whatever brings stress into your life. So I'd ask you, what, what stresses you, right? What stresses you? Is it deadlines at work, right? relationships at school, college acceptance, politics, public health scares, the stock market taking a dive this week, raising your kids? <laughs> Paul says, rejoice! And you say, well, how can I do that? Why, why would I do that when suffering comes? 
Well, now remember, Paul has just told us that we have peace with God, and we've been ushered into this new realm of grace. Our future hope, he said, is secure. So no matter what happens in life, he says we can still rejoice because this, whatever this is, is not the end. In fact, suffering, listen, <laughs> suffering produces an opportunity to grow into Christ's likeness. Ajith Fernando, a Christian leader from Sri Lanka, who ministers to the urban poor, writes this. Long quote, but stick with me. It's a good quote. He says this. He says, The church in each culture has its own special challenges. Theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. He says, I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. He continues, there seems to be a whole lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escaping from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. And he finishes, he says, the good life, comfort and convenience and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through trials. Amen. Now, that is a convicting statement. And there's actually a more famous saying that goes like this, calm seas do not a strong sailor make. Right? Or similarly, calm lives do not strong Christians make. Look at what Paul says at the back half of verse 3. He says, suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. Now, it can also be translated as perseverance. And so what he means is that when pressures build in our lives, yes, let's try to, let's try to relieve them as much as possible, but sometimes it's just, it's just not possible to relieve the suffering. Right, sometimes the blitzkrieg just keeps coming and we, we have to patiently and calmly endure it. And someone who endures is someone who has true faith. Now, I've watched a lot of people, and maybe you have too, I've watched a lot of people who've walked away from Jesus when suffering came. Why? Because they started to question the love of God. That they didn't believe suffering could have any meaning. And when you encounter suffering, listen, you got a couple of choices. You could, choose for, you could choose to despair, to be depressed, to, to be bitter, or you could choose to walk through it and learn. In fact, I, I was recently challenged regarding my view of, of that whole concept of stress. Uh, there's two different kinds of stress we encounter in life. First, there's, there's distress. That's, that's a negative form of stress. That's something we should try to avoid and get out of. Right, but conversely, there is something called eustress, which is it's a positive form of stress. Actually, eustress motivates us, and it, it focuses our energy. In reality, the more positive stress we endure, the more we can, the more we can handle, right? And, and so it may be that God is giving you stress in your life to grow you and to teach you. Right? If the marathon runner wants to complete a marathon, what do they do? They, they have to keep stressing the body to make it stronger. Right, so the body has to endure not just two miles, not just 10 miles, but what? But 26 miles. Now, I, I, I'm not a rocket scientist, but that's a lot of miles. 
right? Some of you out there have run a marathon. That's never going to be me. Endurance has a benefit. He says, endurance produces character. And the Greek word for character is the word dokame, which means tested worth. Now, the adjective of this word describes soldiers and athletes, both of whose metal must be proved by their endurance in combat or competition. So you ask, what is Paul saying here? What Paul is saying is that suffering doesn't come because God doesn't love us. No. Suffering comes to build endurance so that our character can be tested. Do you have a tested character, church? Now, many of us do. Listen, some of us have walked through storms that others would not believe. I mean, that, this is real life, right? Your character is tested when you get the news that a loved one is dying, right? Your character is tested when you find out your child is going to have special needs, right? Your character is tested when you walk in your boss's office and they tell you it's the last day. When you're put in the crucible, you will find out if your faith is real. What does a tested character lead to? He says character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, if you've looked at our, our, our graphic for the series, you know our subtext after is hope for all who fall short. And this is where hope shines brightly right here, right? See, because on the one hand, the world tells us to find hope where? In our circumstances, that if our job is good, if our bank account is full, if we get into the right school, if we got a good bill of health, there's hope, right? But on the other hand, Paul is talking about a hope which transcends our circumstances, that our hope is found in the two advents of Christ, that he came first to die in our place for our sins and make us right with our creator, and secondly, he's going to come again to make all things right and there'll be a whole new world. And so the person who's been tested knows without a doubt there is hope in the end. And listen, again, I know this is counterintuitive, but, but every time, listen, every time, every time we suffer, it's an opportunity for hope. That commentator Douglas Moo says it this way, hope like a muscle will not be strong if it goes unused. So if I stop going to the gym, all the muscle I've built is going to be lost. And if we, go through, if, if we don't go through trials, we will become complacent, apathetic, weak Christians who take their faith for granted. And then when we're attacked, we're not going to have the strength to endure. We're going to be like, oh. Church, as weird as it sounds, suffering can be a blessing, a tool to strengthen our faith. Now, think for just a moment about a time when you encountered suffering. How did you respond? Perhaps one of the greatest tragedies someone can endure is the loss of a child. So about a month ago, news hit the airwaves, and you probably saw it, that NBA great Kobe Bryant was tragically killed in a helicopter accident. And the news got even worse when it was revealed that his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, perished on the flight with him. Now, a few days ago, they held a memorial service for the Bryants at the Staples Center in Los Angeles, and celebrities like Michael Jordan got up, and they attested to their love for their friend. But then, then Vanessa Bryant got up, his wife, and, and all I could think about, she's up there speaking, and all I can think about is, is the pain of losing not just your husband, but your child. 
And I don't know about Vanessa Bryan's faith, but I, listen, I, I do know this. I don't know how you get through something like that without Jesus. Like in all seriousness, where do you run if you don't run to Jesus? Right? Even, and even if you know Jesus, right, it's in those moments that you start to question God's love. And you're painfully aware that the God of this age brings with him destruction. And so listen carefully. In our moments of suffering, that is when the enemy will attack our faith in Christ. Douglas Moo continues. He says this. He says, all suffering betrays the presence of the enemy and involves attacks on our relationship with Christ. If met with doubt in God's goodness and promise, or bitterness towards others, or despair and even resignation, these sufferings can bring spiritual defeat for the believer. And friends, listen, I don't know what everybody's walking through today. I know some of your stories, but not all of your stories. But I know this, we live in a world at war And I imagine, again, many are walking through suffering. And if you're a Christian, our moments of suffering can make us vulnerable or they can make us stronger, right? We can doubt God's love or we can rest in God's love. And so Paul writes in verse 5, he says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So do you see That Paul is saying, yes, we'll face trials, but he is reminding us here of the main thing, that our hope will not put us to shame. Why? Because we've been justified. We've been reconciled to our heavenly father, and so our future is secure. And more than that, God's love, God's love has not been withheld from us. God's love has been poured into our hearts. And some of us need to hear that today. God's love has been poured into your, our hearts. See, listen, this is, this is the first time in Romans that God's love is mentioned. And, and, and God's love is not just some intellectual reality. Right? He's talking here about an inner subjective, yes, even emotional certainty. That God loves you. He wants you to experience his love. And when you're walking through cancer or, or the death of a spouse or challenges with your child or, or a bad breakup, it's then that God wants you to know his love for you. His love is what you need. And he's given you a helper, the Holy Spirit, to walk, to walk through it. See that verb pour out? It's talking about an abundant extravagance. Right, the love is active. It, it's, it's a love that gives to us and takes possession of us. See, friends, I gotta ask, do you need a fresh experience of God's love today? God's love. I would assert to you that as you seek the Lord in suffering, he will abundantly pour out his love upon you. But you must seek him. Don't run away from him. Right, because as you face suffering, you can, you can experience deep communion with the Lord, and it's because of God's love that we can rest in the assurance of the future. Right, that's our final point today. We rest in assurance. And so, he, listen, here's a question. How do you handle suffering? Now, some people will say, not well, right? That's how I handle suffering, not well. But we rest in God's assurance, Here is Paul's main point in this passage. The benefit of justification is hope. Look back at verse 2. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In other words, we, we, we boast in our hope. No matter what happens in life, 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, Paul writes in, in Romans 8. You can rest assured of his love. Why? Why? Look at what Jesus did, verse, verse, verse 6. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. So he brings it back to the gospel, right? We weren't, we weren't just his, his, his enemies. We were weak, ungodly people. And so verses 6 to 8 form, form a single argument about the absolute assured nature of God's love for us. And so he begins the argument this way. He says, God sent Jesus Christ to die, not for righteous people, but for rebellious and undeserving people like us. That's an amen, right? Okay? Remember, Paul spent chapters 1 to 3, painfully, of Romans, telling us how undeserving and weak we are. But it was precisely at this, that moment, when we were weak and undeserving, that Christ died for us. And so Paul continues in verse 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, second, okay, second, Paul, con- Paul contrasts human sacrificial love with God's sacrificial love. Okay, so, so again, ask yourself, who would you, and I ask myself, who would I be willing to die for? Would you die for someone you considered to be good? Like maybe you die for your spouse or your child or a good friend, I don't know. What Paul is saying is that human beings would never die for someone they viewed to be wicked, Right? So this week, Harvey Weinstein, right, the former movie mogul, was convicted in a court in New York City, okay? He was widely seen as an awful human being who did grotesque things. Would you die for that person? Not a chance. (laughs) What Paul is saying is that we might die for someone we consider good, but Jesus died for people like Harvey Weinstein, wicked people. And I'm not saying that he should escape judgment in this life, right? But but we should pray for him that he come to know Jesus because the amazing truth of the gospel is Jesus died for wicked, rebellious, ungodly, sinful people. Leo Tolstoy famously wrote in his book, War and Peace, he said, you can love a person dear to you with a human love, but an enemy, an enemy can only be loved with divine love. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen, this is like one of the most famous verses in the book of Romans, right? And if it doesn't make you say, wow, you need to read it again, okay? Right? God showed his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Some translations say God demonstrated his love for us. When? When we cleaned up our act? When we finally started living a righteous life? No. No, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ shed his blood for us. Christ breathed his last breath for us. Not because we were good people, but because we were wicked and we needed to be redeemed. Right? Because of his sacrifice, we have peace. Because of his sacrifice, we have hope in the future. Because of his sacrifice, we have assurance. Look at at how he brings it together in verse 9. He says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And this is the certainty of the Christian hope. And it's what we cling to when we face suffering, that Jesus saved us, rested that assurance. But here's the tension, right? We still suffer. 
we still suffer. The world is still broken until Jesus comes again. And so theologians call this the already, but the not yet. Yes, we're justified. We've already been saved. We're in the process of being saved. That's our sanctification. And in the future, we will be saved. That's our glorification. How do we live in between the already and the not yet? How do we live in a world at war, awaiting the final peace? In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller asserts that one of the most compelling reasons, listen, if you don't believe, if you're not a Christian out there, he says one of the most compelling reasons for the Christian worldview is its response to suffering. Right? In the Christian worldview, contra the secular worldview, there, there is meaning in suffering, as we've seen in our passage today. And, and he notes in the book, in ancient times, Christianity was widely viewed to have superior resources to, in, in facing evil and suffering and death. And so that's been lost in our modern times. And and he goes on in the book to to talk about three beliefs that can transform our view of hope and suffering. First, and these are on your outline. First, he says, Christianity teaches that our God is personal, wise, infinite, and in control. So therefore, in between the already and the not yet, we trust that God knows what he's doing. Right, what does that mean? It means that, that Christians don't panic. Right? It means that when tragedy strikes, Christians walk toward the pain courageously. It means that people see us as being different. Second, he says, Christianity teaches that our God came to earth and suffered sacrificially for us. Now, how many other religions claim that? Zero. Because of his sacrifice, we have an assured future, and so we recognize that suffering in this life, listen, is temporary. It's temporary. And as we've seen, suffering grows our faith and enables us to become more like Jesus. And then finally, and listen, this is the game changer, right? Finally, Christianity teaches that there will be a bodily resurrection from the dead for all who believe. That this, listen, don't you understand and if you don't, let me tell you, you got to understand that this, the resurrection is what breeds confidence in Christians. Why? Because we are, in a sense, indestructible because we're going to get a new forever body, right? right? One day, this fallen world is going to end and there's going to be peace, right? If your body is riddled with cancer, right, maybe you'll be healed in this life, but most assuredly, it's going to be gone in the new heavens and the new earth, right? If your child has health issues, one day, they're going to get a new body, And it has been famously said, one day, one day, everything sad is going to become untrue. Read the end of the book. So in between the already and the not yet, we live with confidence. We, we, listen, we live like we have peace with God. We live like we have an assured future. And so when you face suffering, don't be afraid. Christians are not afraid. One day it's going to be gone. And so as we close... I want to come back to my friend Josh, who I mentioned at the beginning of this message. Now, shortly, shortly after I came to Millington almost 10 years ago, I got the news that Josh was diagnosed with this rare form of cancer. And as I mentioned, he was 39 at the time, like just a year older than me. And, at, well, older than me at, right now. <clears throat> he and his wife adopted a number of children. And, <laughs> listen, when we talk about facing suffering and walking through suffering, this one's pretty scary. He battled cancer for eight years, 
In fact, when I spoke with him last year, he told me that they couldn't find any. It was completely gone. But just after Christmas, I f- they found out that the cancer had unknowingly spread to his brain, right? which only happens in like 1% of the cases. And so they weren't, even, they weren't looking for it. Josh passed away in early February, and, and when I went to his funeral a couple weeks ago, I was struck by the resilience of his family. But I was even more struck by his passion for Jesus at the end of life, right? a life most of us would agree ended too soon. And so my friend Alan delivered the eulogy, and he, he said this about Josh. He said, listen, even as Josh was receiving cancer treatments at the end of life, he was most concerned about praying for other people. Like, he'd walk in the cancer war, and he's like, oh, I know that person. I got to go pray for them. Like, he's got weeks to live. Alan said when he called me up and asked me to speak at his, his eulogy, he said, he said at least five times, you got, you got to tell them about Jesus. You got to tell them about Jesus. You got to tell them about Jesus. Why? Romans 5.11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And that's what Josh knew, and that's where his hope was grounded. And his funeral was was evidence of a man who boasted in the love of God, and a man who faced suffering with the assurance of the future. Friends, may we live like that. That in this life, know that you can have the peace you long for. We can face the suffering that comes our way, and we do have assurance in the life to come. Amen?